Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted March 3rd, 2017, we consider Turkey's complex conflicts, foreign and domestic, with World Policy Institute fellow Elmira Berasli, also co-founder of the Foreign Policy Interrupted Initiative to amplify the views of women on international affairs. We'll also point out top features in the new winter issue that Bay Rossley co-guest edited, Coverline Interrupted, with the unique perspective provided by all female writers and editors. But first, this week's winners and losers report from Ian Bremmer's Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. We've got winners and losers. Mr. Trump goes to Capitol Hill. Allies abroad, on balance winners. He stood up for NATO and didn't say anything really horrible about him. U.S. military. Clearly a winner. They think they're going to get more money, but wait till that budget hit Congress. Free trade, still a loser. Not what he wants to talk about. He's anti-globalist. He's America's president, not everybody else's. Immigration reform, it's in the balance. No one knows what he actually wants. Then finally, Trump's speechwriter, Stephen Miller, winner. He actually read a speech. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. In the beginning, the coalition said that they were going to fight ISIS. They were even accusing us of supporting ISIS. Now they have all disappeared. On the contrary, they are supporting terrorist YPG PYD, including ISIS. It's very clear. We have confirmed evidence with pictures, photos and videos. After blaming his longtime U.S. ally for supporting both a failed coup against him and terror groups in Syria, including ISIS, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan ended 2016 by joining with Russia in a Syrian ceasefire and peace talks plan from which Washington was excluded. After charging that presidential candidate Donald Trump had, quote, no tolerance for Muslims in America, unquote, and demanding his name be removed from Twin Towers in Istanbul, the increasingly dictatorial Erdogan decided to interpret Trump's election favorably for, quote, developments in our region. With that region and Erdogan himself facing continued conflict and terrorism, World Policy Journal posted a talking policy feature with World Policy Institute fellow Elmira Bayrasli about the complexities behind Turkey's ongoing foreign and domestic challenges. Bayrasli is also guest co-editor of the all-women WPJ winter issue, and we spoke about both her post and the winter issue recently for this podcast. Elmira Bayrasli, welcome back to World Policy on Air. It's great to be here. You begin by stressing the fragility of Turkey's democracy from the very start. Remind us. Unfortunately, Turkey's democracy has always been just very fragile, even when it was founded in 1923 by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder and leader of the Republic of Turkey. He founded the country out of the ashes of the Ottoman Empire, and he really kind of pushed forward and managed to create a country that he wanted oriented towards the West. And in doing so, he, he really formulated a government that was very top-down heavy, that didn't really focus in on building institutions or the rule of law. I think there's, I mean, certainly, I think you can take a look at our own history in the United States, and I think the trajectory of our own country, we can see the, the challenges of, of building a democracy, and I, I think Turkey is no different. One of the things that Turkey has failed to do, unlike the United States, 
when you take a look at Turkish political history since 1923, it's had elections, but it's also unfortunately had military coups where the generals have come in and just taken over the government and removed the people who were democratically elected. This happened in 1960, it happened in 1971, and it happened again in 1980. And of course, we all are aware of the most recent coup attempt in July of 2016. Primarily, this has been a result of the fact that institutions have never been a priority and rule of law has always been very weak in Turkey. What are the different groups and causes behind the recent surge of terrorism in Turkey? Most notably, the New Year's attack on an Istanbul nightclub when a gunman opened fire, killing 39 and injuring more. Turkey, first of all, is no stranger to terrorism. Turkey has been undergoing a terrorist threat throughout much of the late 20th century, particularly in the 1990s and in 2000 with the Kurdish terrorist group, the PKK. When Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is currently Turkey's president, first came to power as the leader of the Justice and Development Party, more commonly known as the AKP, he was then the country's prime minister. And he actually worked to create peace with the Kurds and to end that terrorism. And for a while that worked. What we see today goes back to that saying, what you sow, you reap. This is the terrorism that we're seeing is, again, the resurrection of the PKK violence that we saw back in the, in the 1990s and in early 2000. But we're also seeing the terrorism of the Islamic State. And the assassination that took place at the Reina nightclub was something that ISIS did take responsibility for. Now, how did that happen? And this is where Turkey becomes very complicated to understand. And you have to actually have a map to, to kind of map out what's going on. Turkey borders Syria. It also has a large number of Kurds. It's the largest minority in Turkey. There are a lot of Kurds also in Syria. When the Syrian civil war first broke out, the Turks very much wanted Assad out. And it supported the anti-Assad factions like Jabhat al-Nusra, and it actually allowed foreign fighters to go across from the Turkish border into Syria to, to support that fight. You had then the growth of these Islamic extremists. To fight the Islamic extremists, the, the Kurds in Syria kind of bolstered their own, their, their own efforts to fight them, and the Americans certainly wanted the, the Kurdish factions known as the YPG to fight them. And Tur the Turkey didn't want this because they're afraid of, of not only a renewed civil war within their country, but they're afraid of a separatist movement, which is something that the PKK has long wanted. So reap what you sow. It's early on Erdogan supported the anti-Assad fighters, which grew into be ISIS. And now that's becoming a problem in Turkey itself. Because he's joined the fight against them and they're retaliating after having had their way eased for them by him. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, Turkey and Washington did not see eye to eye on how to, how to deal with, this, with the Syrian situation. Turkey would not allow um, the Americans to launch airstrikes from the Turkish base Injerlik, which is in southern Turkey. In 2015, they changed that policy and they did allow those strikes. 
and what you actually saw immediately following that was a number of, of terrorist incidents in Turkey that ISIS did not directly claim, but it actually started to show the Turkish government that you can't turn your back on us. And so on, Ju on June 28th of last year, there was, a oh, there was a shooting at Atatürk International Airport. Again, many believe that that was ISIS-related, though ISIS didn't claim responsibility for it. The first terrorist incident in Turkey that ISIS has claimed responsibility for is the Reyna nightclub attack on New Year's Eve. Let me try to get this straight. The Kurds in Syria have become among America's best allies against the Islamic State there. Is it their opposition to anti-Assad forces that spurs uh, Erdogan's hardline or their desire for some territory of their own within Syria or the inspiration they give to separatist Kurds inside Turkey? Okay, and here's again where you kind of you, you need like a little chart to, to track what's going on. Um, you, you, if you take a look at what the United States wants, it wants to defeat the Islamic State. It wants to defeat ISIS. And in doing so, they want to support the Kurds, particularly the YPG, which is a Syrian Kurdish group. The, the Turks don't want this because they're afraid their own population is going to call for rebellion and separatism. And it becomes very complicated in who is supporting whom. Um, because of that position, in order for the United States to stand down on its position in the Kurds, the Turks did align with the Americans to bomb Islamic extremists in northern Syria from Turkish soil, and referring back to the Interlik air base that I just mentioned. And that's really when you see the Islamists lash out at Erdogan. In terms of the, of the Kurds and the PKK, one of the reasons that you, you are seeing this instability is nationalism is something that really resonates in Turkey. And even though Erdogan first came to power in 2003 with a message of unity and talking about minority rights, and he actually did reach out to the Kurds and minorities in Turkey. What he has found himself doing in trying to cling on to power is to reignite this war with the Kurds, which actually does very much resonate with the nationalists in Turkey, which have become very ardent supporters of Tayyip Erdogan. Following the wave of terrorism in Turkey and the failed military coup last July, both government repression and a sense of political instability are growing. Uh, Erdogan ordered mass arrests and firings of government workers in and out of uniform and pressed parliament to give him more power, uh, first with a state of emergency, then a new constitution uh, that goes to a national referendum in April. How has it all affected what seems to be his larger, increasingly Islamic agenda? You know, I'm not necessarily sure. I mean, I, I think that because Erdogan is very openly and, and forwardly religious, I think everybody likes to say that he has an Islamic agenda. I'm not necessarily sure that it's an Islamic agenda, but much more of an authoritarian agenda. I think Erdogan is very focused on trying to cling on to power. That being said, as it relates to the failed military coup and what he's been doing in the, in the mass arrests and firings that you referred to, number one, it's really important to actually point out that it's still unclear who perpetrated the coup. Every indication does seem that it was individuals who support Fethullah Gulen, an Islamic cleric who actually lives here in the United States in Pennsylvania. 
he and Erdogan used to be allies, but they've become very bitter enemies. And again, this is all about power struggle. It is credible, and it does. every indication does seem that the Gulenists and the, and the supporters of Fethullah Gulen are the ones who staged this coup, which took a lot of by surprise, including myself. However much you want to criticize Erdogan, he did need to respond in the way that he did following a coup attempt. He has overplayed his hand, however. An earlier World Policy Journal contributor said the military rebels, with or without Gulen's inspiration, were clearly fuming over alleged corruption connected to Erdogan, his uh, blind eye to anti-Assad Islamic terrorists crossing Turkey's border into the war zone and then back again for their own reasons, notably uh, the al-Nusra Front, also known as al-Qaeda in Syria. He suggested that Erdogan got a last-minute warning from inside the coup leadership that led it to starting prematurely and to his foiling it, mobilizing more popular support for himself in the process. What's your view of that? I mean, that was one thing. I, th- I think the intelligence was one thing that a lot of people pointed to. I don't think it's any secret that Turkish intelligence is very strong. Turkey has advanced equipment and, and monitoring equipment, and I think that the state is very eager to know who is either defying Erdogan. General Toll, who is a scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, was very one of the very few people that actually kind of pinpointed and and said that there might actually be a possibility of a military coup in in Turkey. Precisely because Erdogan has really gained so much power and he controls everything and he's so keen on getting any opposition voice out of his way that any channels for expression and opposition have been muted. And so her conclusion was, you know, in this atmosphere, you kind of have that, the pressure cooker, where at any point it's going to boil over. I think everybody's very focused on Erdogan's purges and not enough on the intelligence and whether Erdogan did know and allowed it to proceed in order for him to then clamp down in the way that he has, in this heavy-handed way that he has. Erdogan is obviously a polarizing figure. In fact, after meeting him in 2003, you've written that, quote, it is hard, if not impossible, to find an objective perspective on him. But you've also called him a product of Turkey's broken democracy. Say more about that. I met Erdogan shortly after he became prime minister in 2003. Um, I visited his office in Ankara, and I have to say he is an extremely charismatic figure. He is also extremely smart. Um, I mean, I can see the compelling reason why people in Turkey are drawn to him. He, um, he's very, he, he, he has a very magnetic personality. Um, and, and I think that when he first came to power, and I sincerely believe that he really did want to change Turkey for the better. His rhetoric when he first campaigned in 2002 and when he became prime minister in 2003 was very much about rebuilding a Turkey for everyone. And he actually said that he represents, he said to me in our conversation, he said, I represent, there are 72 million people in this country and I represent each and every one. And he talked about reaching out to the Kurds, to other minorities, which include the Alevis in Turkey. And he actually really took a lot of steps to actually rebuild human rights and civil society in Turkey. The point about him being a product of Turkey's broken democracy is the fact that with weak institutions, with weak rule of law, and frankly, with a weak opposition, 
there was nothing to check Erdogan's power. And as his power grew, I think so did his pensions for kind of ensuring that and silencing his, his opponents and any dissenters. And so when you take a look at what he set out to do and what he became, it's actually quite a tragedy because I think that the man who actually ran and got involved in politics was somebody who had a bolder vision to actually transform Turkey, and instead, Turkey transformed him. Since the coup, the Turkish government has demanded that Washington return that alleged uh, catalyst cleric, Gulen, uh, living secluded for years in Pennsylvania. The Obama administration refused, saying it's a matter of American courts to decide based on U.S. law and Turkish evidence. Do you see the new U.S. administration behaving differently, given Trump's controversial view of Muslims, but also what Erdogan has said about that in the past? Would Gulen be wise to quickly find another country from which to avoid extradition? Certainly the Erdogan government applauded when Trump won the U.S. elections. Um, and it was interesting to note that Turkey's foreign minister, Mevlut Çavuşoğlu, actually attended Trump's inauguration on Friday. Usually ambassadors go to such an event, and for a very senior Turkish official to attend is something that really take note of. This current government is really hoping to have a better relationship with Washington than they did under the Obama administration. What the Trump administration will do has yet to be seen. Certainly there are individuals within the Trump administration that understand the challenges in Turkey and realize that Turkey is an important key player, not only in NATO, but also this fight against ISIS. It still remains to be seen what the Trump administration will do. That being said, I think that the Turks um, might be in for a disappointment because I'm not really too sure how much Donald Trump and his administration will veer away from the Obama position. I know that Trump talks a big talk, but at the same time, he doesn't have very good foreign policy experience. And for him to actually go out on a limb and, and take a different tactic than the Obama administration, I, I, it seems like a far stretch to me. And what happens to U.S.-Turkey relations if the new administration lets Gulen stay? Is Erdogan moving towards uh, closer ties with Moscow and its other ally, Iran? Well, I mean, that's already happened. I mean, today, um, Russia and Iran and Turkey have started talks on Syria in the Kazakhstan capital of Asana. Um, and notably, the United States is absent there. The U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan is, is there. But I think one of the reasons that that Erdogan and Ankara has reestablished good relations with Russia is this short-term gain of, you know, Erdogan sees, you know, wh who are his allies and where is he going to actually gain the most? And right now, Putin holds a lot of power and a lot of the cards. And another reason that Turkey and Erdogan want to align with Russia it has to do not only because they're regional partners and because Ankara's relationship with Washington is weakened, but Ankara also in Turkey needs energy, which is something that the Russians supply. And so to have good relations with Russia actually benefits Turkey in the short term. In the longer term, however, it will be interesting to see how longer that Russian-Turkish rapprochement lasts. Russians and Turks don't see eye to eye, particularly on the Kurdish question. The Russians in the past have supported the PKK. They have supplied arms to the terrorists in the Kurdish terrorists in Turkey. And so 
you know, this is a short-term partnership. In the longer term, I'm not sure how long that will last. Turkey has not made any indication that it's ready to pull out of NATO or to turn its back on Washington. Uh, aside from supplying energy, can Russia supply the economic and military aid uh, on the level that the United States has for Turkey for all of these years? Can it be a substitute for the U.S.? Turkey tried certainly to buy arms from people other than the United States, and they tried to develop a partnership with China, and that immediately fell apart. I don't think you're going to see immediately a huge change between the, the U.S.-Turkish relationship when it comes to military, particularly because Turkey is a very important key player within NATO. I, I don't think that the Turks also want to start depending on Russia for military assistance for a number of different reasons. I think if you just take a look at the history between Russia and Turkey, which has been very fraught, but also Turkey has a very strong military. It certainly depends on weapons, planes, and other equipment from the outside. But in terms of training, I think, you know, it's either on par or, or it, it exceeds the Russian military. So I actually don't think that they would, they would turn to Russia on that matter. In 2015, you published the book From the Other Side of the World, looking at the impact of entrepreneurs in non-Western countries, including Turkey. We talked about it then on this podcast. But to what degree do you see this economic activity changing the course of the country, economic and political, under Erdogan and, and in the long term? You know, it's... It's always it's easy to actually lose hope when you take a look at Turkey, but we also have to remember Turkey is not it's not a one-dimensional place. Um, you know, daily life in Turkey still goes on, businesses still operate, and certainly um, I'm very in close touch with the entrepreneur entrepreneurship startup community in Istanbul, um, and they're and they're moving forward. Just last week, um, a fintech firm named Izico um, announced a Series C, 13 million dollar fund that they raised, um, and venture capital firms um, that have been formed are still continuing to invest in in Turkish startups. You know, I think a lot of foreign investors have gotten cold feet, and understandably so, but I think that the people who are on the ground there, certainly the Turkish investors and the Turkish entrepreneurs, are going to keep moving forward. And if there's any glimpse of hope in Turkey, it's certainly them. What about the role of grassroots organizations, activists, academics, in shaping Turkey's future now? You know, I, I think the, the the role of, of the activists and NGOs in Turkey is a bleak one. Um, you know, Erdogan has shut down a lot of NGOs, particularly ones that engage in political activism. And, you know, the reality is people are afraid to go out and mobilize and organize and go out there, um, you know, and protest in any type of form. We've seen Erdogan shut down social media, um, Twitter, WhatsApp, at points where he, he feels that, you know, he doesn't like the discourse that's going on. Um, you know, I think that, I think it's become very difficult to be an NGO worker or an activist in Turkey, but I also think that Turks, like any other people, are resilient. Um, I, I have seen that if, if their livelihood is threatened, they will stand up and, and they will try to protect their rights. And I certainly think that, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I do believe in the, in the strength and the fortitude of the Turkish people. We'd be remiss not to ask about the all-female WPJ winner issue, guest edited by you and Istanbul-based correspondent Lauren Bond, 
also a co-founder of Foreign Policy uh, Interrupted, that initiative to aid and amplify the views of female foreign policy experts. Say more about why that goal is so important. You know, today's world is it's not it's not the simple kind of bipolar world that we saw in the 20th century um you know everything power lied within within leaders and nation states so when you talked about power it was very much about washington moscow london paris um with social media and technology individuals everywhere have power today and you know we carry around smartphones that actually have more power than NASA did in the in the 1960s um, and we get information at the same time as the president of the United States does and the pace at which we respond to various issues and crises is sped up and you know we've seen that with a number of different different events like Tahrir Square I think the Arab Spring was a perfect example of how real-time events you know are no longer in the control of, of government officials and with things like climate change growing authoritarianism extremism with pandemics such as Zika and Ebola going on I think it's really important that we have all hands on deck and the importance of the all-female issue of the of the World Policy Journal the importance of that is to actually not to have diversity not for diversity's sake but the reality is we actually need different viewpoints and different solutions to solve all of these problems at the pace in which we're going it's really very important that we have all sorts of solutions and people involved you know in trying to work out the, the very complicated world that we're living in today Elmira thank you Thank you, David. World Policy Institute fellow Elmira Berasli is co-founder of the Foreign Policy Interrupted Initiative to amplify the views of female foreign policy experts. She's also the guest co-editor of the all-women WPJ winner issue and was the subject of a WPJ blog talking policy feature about the complexities behind Turkey's ongoing foreign and domestic challenges. Since we spoke, Erdogan announced that emergency rule at home will continue, quote, until everything settles down. A leading newspaper's report suggesting new discord with military leaders after Erdogan unilaterally lifted a ban on women in uniform wearing Islamic headscarves led to replacement of the paper's editor. But international challenges for Erdogan continue. His first phone call with President Trump and meetings with other top U.S. officials did not immediately win Turkish demands for extradition of the opposition cleric Gulen or an end to the U.S. alliance with Kurdish fighters in Syria. In fact, Erdogan met with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani to promise improved ties despite their opposing stands on Syrian President Assad. And the Austrian foreign minister declared Erdogan, quote, not welcome to cause friction among Austria's Turkish population by campaigning for his proposed constitution on any visit before the April 16 referendum back in Turkey. Featured in that new WPJ winter issue, Coverline Interrupted, you'll find articles on the fight for gender parity in Kenya and Somalia, a Saudi-Egyptian alliance going on the rocks, and the bad manners and serious bias that algorithms behind artificial intelligence can pick up from the real world. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the future of U.S.-Russian relations with New School Professor Nina Khrushcheva, 
great-granddaughter of the late Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.